Hello, and welcome back to the Reading Club. I'm so glad you could join me on today's reading. Today we are picking back up from where we left off with Tuesdays with Mori. And as a quick brief summary, last time we left off on the fifth Tuesday of Mitch's visit to Mori. Mori's condition during this time has developed to the point he is now no longer able to move his arms around freely or to speak with the ease he used to. As Mori's body continues to fail him, Mitch witnesses Mori's growing reliance on his aids and even machines like the oxygen tank to help him breathe. But despite this regression of Mori's physical state, Mori manages to live every day with more gratitude, care, love, and passion than most would. The lessons not only influence Mitch to reevaluate the life he has immersed himself into, but it also asks him to ponder life's bigger questions on what should be truly valued. So let's jump in to part three of Tuesdays with Mori. Chapter 14 The fifth Tuesday, we talk about family. It was the first week in September, back to school week, and after 35 consecutive autumns, my old professor did not have a class waiting for him on a college campus. Boston was teeming with students, double parked on side streets, unloading trucks, and here was Maury in his study. It seemed wrong like those football players who finally retire and have to face that first Sunday at home, watching on TV, thinking, I could still do that. I have learned from dealing with those players that it is best to leave them alone when their old seasons come around. Don't say anything. But then, I didn't need to remind Maury of his dwindling time. For our taped conversations, we have switched from handheld microphones because it was too difficult now for Maury to hold anything that long. To the lavalier, kind popular with TV news people. You can clip these onto a collar or label. Of course, since Mori only wore soft cotton shirts that hung loosely on his ever-shrinking frame, the microphone sagged and flopped, and I had to reach over and adjust it frequently. Mori seemed to enjoy this because it brought me close to him, in hugging range, and his need for physical affection was stronger than ever. When I leaned in, I heard his wheezing breath and his weak coughing, and he smacked his lips softly before he swallowed. Well, my friend, he said, what are we talking about today? How about family? Family. He mulled over a moment. Well, you see mine all around me. He nodded to photos on his bookshelves of Maury as a child with his grandmother, Maury as a young man with his brother David, Maury with his wife Charlotte. Mori with his two sons, Rob, a journalist in Tokyo, and John, a computer expert in Boston. I think, in light of what we've been talking about all these weeks, family becomes even more important, he said. The fact is, there is no foundation, no secure ground, upon which people may stand today, if it isn't the family. It's become quite clear to me as I've been sick. If you don't have the support and love and caring concern that you get from a family, you don't have much at all. Love is so supremely important. As our great poet Auden said, love each other or perish. Love each other or perish. I wrote it down. Auden said that? Love each other or perish, Maury said. 
It's good, no? And it's so true. Without love, we are birds with broken wings. Say I was divorced or living alone or had no children. This disease, what I'm going through, would be so much harder. I'm not sure I could do it. Sure, people would come visit, friends, associates, but it's not the same as having someone who will not leave. It's not the same as having someone whom you know has an eye on you, is watching you the whole time. This is part of what a family is about. Not just love, but letting others know there's someone who's watching out for them. It's what I miss so much when my mother died. What I call your spiritual security, knowing that your family will be there watching out for you. Nothing else will give you that. Not money, not fame. He shot me a look. Not work, he added. Raising a family was one of those issues on my little list. Things you want to get right before it's too late. I told Mori about my generation's dilemma with having children, how we often saw them as tying us down, making us into these parent things that we did not want to be. I admitted to some of these emotions myself. Yet, when I looked at Mori, I wondered if I were in his shoes about to die and had no family, no children, would the emptiness be unbearable? He had raised his two sons to be loving and caring, and like Mori, they were not shy with their affection. Had he so desired, they would have stopped what they were doing to be with their father every minute of his final months. But that was not what he wanted. Do not stop your lives, he told them. Otherwise, this disease will have ruined three of us instead of one. In this way, even as he was dying, he showed respect for his children's world. Little wonder that when they sat with him, there was a waterfall of affection, lots of kisses and jokes and crouching by the side of the bed, holding hands. Whenever people ask me about having children or not having children, I never tell them what to do, Maury said now, looking at a photo of his oldest son. I simply say, there is no experience like having children. That's all. There's no substitute for it. You cannot do it with a friend, you cannot do it with a lover, if you want the experience of having complete responsibility for another human being and to learn how to love and bond in the deepest way, then you should have children. So you would do it again? I asked. I glanced at the photo. Rob was kissing Mori on the forehead and Mori was laughing with his eyes closed. Would I do it again? He said to me looking surprised. Mitch. I would not have missed that experience for anything, even though he swallowed and put the picture in his lap, even though there is a painful price to pay, he said, because you'll be leaving them, because I'll be leaving them soon. He pulled his lips together and closed his eyes, and I watched the first teardrop fall from the side of his cheek. And now, he whispered, you talk. Me? Your family. I know about your parents. I met them years ago at graduation. You have a sister too, right? Yes, I said. Older, yes? Older. And one brother, right? I nodded. Younger? Younger. Like me, Maury said. I have a younger brother. Like you, I said. He also came to your graduation, didn't he? I blinked, and in my mind I saw us all there sixteen years earlier. The hot sun, the blue robes squinting as we put our arms around each other and posed for instamatic photos. Someone saying, one, two, three. What is it? Maury said, noticing my sudden quiet. What's on your mind? 
nothing, I said, changing the subject. The truth is, I do indeed have a brother. A blonde-haired, hazel-eyed, two years younger brother who looks so unlike me, or my dark-haired sister that we used to tease him by claiming strangers had left him as a baby on our doorstep. And one day, we'd say, they're coming back to get you. He cried when we said this, but we said it just the same. He grew up the way many youngest children grow up, pampered, adored, and inwardly tortured. He dreamed of being an actor or a singer. He reenacted TV shows at the dinner table, playing every part, his bright smile practically jumping through his lips. I was the good student. He was the bad. I was obedient. He broke the rules. I stayed away from drugs and alcohol. He tried everything you could ingest. He moved to Europe not long after high school, preferring the more casual lifestyle he found there. Yet he remained the family favorite. When he visited home, in his wild and funny presence, I often felt stiff and conservative. As different as we were, I reasoned that our fates would shoot in opposite directions once we hit adulthood. I was right in all ways but one. From the day my uncle died, I believed that I would suffer a similar death an untimely disease that would take me out. So I worked at a feverish pace, and I braced myself for cancer. I could feel its breath. I knew it was coming. I waited for it, the way a condemned man waits for the executioner. And I was right. It came. But it missed me. It struck my brother. The same type of cancer as my uncle, the pancreas, a rare form. And so the youngest of our family, with the blonde hair and the hazel eyes, had the chemotherapy and the radiation. His hair fell out, his face went gaunt as a skeleton. It's supposed to be me, I thought, but my brother was not me and he was not my uncle. He was a fighter and had been since his youngest days when we wrestled in the basement and he actually bit through my shoe until I screamed in pain and let him go. And so he fought back. He battled the disease in Spain where he lived with the aid of an experimental drug that was not, and still is not, available in the United States. He flew all over Europe for treatments. After five years of treatment, the drug appeared to chase the cancer into remission. That was the good news. The bad news was, my brother did not want me around, not me, nor anyone in the family. Much as we tried to call and visit, he held us at bay, insisting this fight was something he needed to do by himself. Months would pass without a word from him. Messages on his answering machine would go without reply. I was ripped with guilt for what I felt I should be doing for him and fueled with anger for his denying us the right to do it. So once again, I dove into work. I worked because I could control it. I worked because work was sensible and responsive. And each time I would call my brother's apartment in Spain and get the answering machine, him speaking in Spanish, another sign of how far apart we had drifted, I would hang up and work some more. Perhaps this is one reason I was drawn to Mori. He let me be where my brother would not. Looking back, perhaps Mori knew this all along. It is a winter in my childhood, on a snow-packed hill in our suburban neighborhood. My brother and I are on the sled, him on top, me on the bottom. I feel his chin on my shoulder and his feet on the backs of my knees. The sled rumbles on icy patches beneath us. We pick up speed as we descend the hill. Car! Someone yells. 
We see it coming down the street to our left. We scream and try to steer away, but the runners do not move. The driver slams his horn and hits the brakes. And we do what all kids do. We jump off in our hooded parkas. We roll like logs down the cold, wet snow, thinking the next thing to touch us will be the hard rubber of a car tire. We are yelling, ah, and we are tingling with fear, turning over and over. The world upside down, right side up, upside down. And then nothing. We stop rolling and catch our breath and wipe the dripping snow from our faces. The driver turns down the street, wagging his finger. We are safe. Our sled has thudded quietly into a snowbank, and our friends are slapping us now, saying, Cool, and you could have died. I grin at my brother, and we are united by childish pride. That wasn't so hard, we think, and we are ready to take on death again. Chapter 15 The sixth Tuesday, we talk about emotions. I walked past the mountain laurels and the Japanese maple of the bluestone steps of Mori's house. The white rain gutter hung like a lid over the doorway. I rang the bell and was greeted not by Connie, but by Maury's wife, Charlotte, a beautiful gray-haired woman who spoke in a lilting voice. She was not often at home when I came by. She continued working at MIT as Maury wished, and I was surprised this morning to see her. Maury's having a bit of a hard time today, she said. She stared over my shoulder for a moment, then moved toward the kitchen. I'm sorry, I said. No, no, he'll be happy to see you, she said quickly. I'm sure... She stopped in the middle of the sentence, turning her head slightly, listening for something. Then she continued. I'm sure he'll feel better when he knows you're here. I lifted up the bags from the market, my normal food supply. I said jokingly, and she seemed to smile and fret at the same time. There's already so much food, he hasn't eaten any from last time. This took me by surprise. He hasn't eaten any, I asked. She opened the refrigerator, and I saw familiar containers of chicken salad, vermicelli, vegetables, stuffed squash, all things I have brought for Mori. She opened the freezer, and there was even more. Mori can't eat most of this food. It's too hard for him to swallow. He has to eat soft things and liquid drinks now. But he never said anything, I said. Charlotte smiled. He doesn't want to hurt your feelings. It wouldn't have hurt my feelings. I just wanted to help in some way. I mean, I just wanted to bring him something. You are bringing him something. He looks forward to your visits. He talks about having to do this project with you. How he has to concentrate and put the time aside. I think it's giving him a good sense of purpose. Again, she gave that faraway look and tuning in something from somewhere else. I knew Maury's night were becoming difficult. That he didn't sleep through them and that Miss Charlotte often did not sleep through them either. Sometimes, Maury would lie awake coughing for hours, and it would take that long to get the phlegm from his throat. There were healthcare workers now staying through the night, and all those visitors during the day, former students, fellow professors, meditation teachers, tramping in and out of the house. On some days, Maury had a half a dozen visitors, and they were often there when Charlotte returned from work. She handled it with patience, even though all these outsiders were soaking up her precious minutes with Maury. A sense of purpose, she continued. Yes, that's good, you know. I hope so, I said. I helped put the new food inside the refrigerator. The kitchen counter had all kinds of notes, messages, information, medical instructions. The table held more pill bottles than ever. Celestone for his asthma, Ativan to help him sleep, 
naproxen for infections, along with a powdered milk mix and laxatives. From down the hall, we heard the sound of a door open. Maybe he's available now. Let me go check. Charlotte glanced again at my food and I felt suddenly ashamed. All these reminders of things Maury would never enjoy. The small horrors of his illness were growing, and when I finally sat down with Maury, he was coughing more than usual. A dry, dusty cough that shook his chest and made his head jerk forward. After one violent surge, he stopped, closed his eyes, and took a breath. I sat quietly because I thought he was recovering from his exertion. Is the tape on, he said suddenly, his eyes still closed. Yes, yes, I quickly said, pressing down the play and record buttons. What I'm doing now, he continued, his eyes still closed, is detaching myself from the experience. Detaching yourself? Yes, detaching myself. And this is important, not just for someone like me who is dying, but for someone like you who is perfectly healthy. Learn to detach. He opened his eyes, he exhaled. You know what the Buddhists say, don't cling to things because everything is impermanent? But wait, I said, aren't you always talking about experiencing life, all the good emotions, all the bad ones? Yes. Well, how can you do that if you're detached? Ah, you're thinking, Mitch. But detachment doesn't mean you don't let the experience penetrate you. On the contrary, you let it penetrate you fully. That's how you are able to leave it. I'm lost. Take any emotion, love for a woman, or grief for a loved one, or what I'm going through, fear and pain from a deadly illness. If you hold back on the emotions, if you don't allow yourself to go all the way through them, you can never get to being detached. You're too busy being afraid. You're afraid of the pain, you're afraid of the grief, you're afraid of the vulnerability that loving entails. But by throwing yourself into these emotions, by allowing yourself to dive in all the way, over your head even, you experience them fully and completely. You know what pain is, you know what love is, you know what grief is. And only then can you say, all right, I have experienced that emotion. I recognize that emotion. Now I need to detach from that emotion for a moment. Mori stopped and looked me over, perhaps to make sure I was getting this right. I know you think this is just about dying, he said, but it's like I keep telling you, when you learn how to die, you learn how to live. Mori talked about his most fearful moments, when he felt his chest locked in heaving surges, or when he wasn't sure where his next breath would come from. These were horrifying times, he said, and his first emotions were horror, fear, anxiety. But once he recognized the feel of those emotions, their texture, their moisture, the shiver down the back, the quick flash of heat that crosses your brain, then he was able to say, okay, this is fear, step away from it, step away. I thought about how often this was needed in everyday life, how we feel lonely, sometimes to the point of tears, but we don't let those tears come because we're not supposed to cry, or how we feel a surge of love for a partner, but we don't say anything because we're frozen with fear of what those words might do to the relationship. Maury's approach was exactly the opposite. Turn on the faucet. Wash yourself with the emotion. It won't hurt you. It will only help. If you let the fear inside, if you pull it on like a familiar shirt, then you can say to yourself, all right, it's just fear. I don't have to let it control me. I see it for what it is. 
Same for loneliness. You let go, let the tears flow, feel it completely, but eventually be able to say, all right, that was my moment with loneliness. I'm not afraid of feeling lonely, but now I'm going to put that loneliness aside and know that there are other emotions in the world and I'm going to experience them as well. Detach, Mori said again. He closed his eyes, then coughed, then coughed again, then coughed again more loudly. Suddenly, he was half choking, the congestion in his lungs seemingly teasing him, jumping halfway up, then dropping back down, stealing his breath. He was gagging, then hacking violently, and he shook his hands in front of him with his eyes closed. Shaking his hands, he appeared almost possessed, and I felt my forehead break into a sweat. I instinctively pulled him forward and slapped the back of his shoulders, and he pushed the tissue to his mouth and spit out a wad of phlegm. The coughing stopped, and Mori dropped back into the foam pillows and sucked in air. You okay? You alright? I said, trying to hide my fear. I'm... okay, Mori whispered, raising a shaky finger. Just... wait a minute. We sat there quietly until his breathing returned to normal. I felt the perspiration on my scalp. He asked me to close the window. The breeze was making him cold. I didn't mention that it was 80 degrees outside. Finally, in a whisper, he said, I know how I want to die. I waited in silence. I want to die serenely, peacefully, not like what just happened. And this is where detachment comes in. If I die in the middle of a coughing spell like I just had, I need to be able to detach from the horror. I need to say, this is my moment. I don't want to leave the world in a state of fright. I want to know what's happening, accept it, get to a peaceful place and let go. Do you understand? I nodded. Don't let go yet, I added quickly. Mori forced a smile. No, not yet. We still have work to do. Do you believe in reincarnation, I asked. Perhaps. What would you come back as? If I had my choice, a gazelle. A gazelle? Yes, so graceful, so fast. A gazelle? Maury smiles at me. You think that's strange? I study his shrunken frame, the loose clothes, the socks wrapped feet that rest stiffly on foam rubber cushions, unable to move like a prisoner in leg irons. I picture a gazelle racing across the desert. No, I say, I don't think that's strange at all. Chapter 16 The Professor, Part 2 The Mori I knew, the Mori so many others knew, would not have been the man he was without the years he spent working at a mental hospital just outside Washington, D.C., a place with a deceptively peaceful name of Chestnut Lodge. It was one of Mori's first jobs after plowing through a master's degree and a PhD from the University of Chicago. Having rejected medicine, law, and business, Mori had decided the research world would be a place where he could contribute without exploiting others. Mori was given a grant to observe mental patients and record their treatments. While the idea seems common today, it was groundbreaking in the early 50s. Mori saw patients who would scream all day, patients who would cry all night, patients soiling their underwear, patients refusing to eat, having to be held down, medicated fed intravenously. 
One of the patients, a middle-aged woman, came out of her room every day and lay face down on the tile floor, stayed there for hours. As doctors and nurses stepped around her, Maury watched in horror, he took notes, which is what he was there to do. Every day, she did the same thing, came out in the morning, lay on the floor, stayed there until the evening, talking to no one, ignored by everyone. It saddened Maury. He began to sit on the floor with her, even lay alongside her, trying to draw her out of her misery. Eventually, he got her to sit up, and even returned to her room. What she mostly wanted, he learned, was the same thing many people want, someone to notice she was there. Maury worked at Chestnut Lodge for five years. Although it wasn't encouraged, he befriended some of the patients, including a woman who joked with him about how lucky she was to be there. Because my husband is rich, so he can afford it. Can you imagine if I had to be in one of those cheap mental hospitals? Another woman, who would spit at everyone else, took to Maury and called him her friend. They talked each day, and the staff was at least encouraged that someone had gotten through to her. But one day, she ran away, and Maury was asked to help bring her back. They tracked her down in a nearby store hiding in the back, and when Maury went in, she burned an angry look at him. So you're one of them too, she snarled. One of who? My jailers. Maury observed that most of the patients there had been rejected and ignored in their lives, made to feel that they didn't exist. They also missed compassion, something the staff ran out of quickly. And many of these patients were well off from rich families, so their wealth did not buy them happiness or contentment. It was a lesson he never forgot. I used to tease Maury that he was stuck in the 60s. He would answer that the 60s weren't so bad compared to the times we live in now. He came to Brandeis after his work in the mental health field, just before the 60s began. Within a few years, the campus became a hotbed for cultural revolution. Drugs, sex, race, Vietnam protests. Abby Hoffman attended Brandeis, so did Jerry Rubin and Angela Davis. Maury had many of the radical students in his classes. That was partly because, instead of simply teaching the sociology, faculty got involved. It was a fiercely anti-war, for example. When the professors learned that students who did not maintain a certain grade point average could lose their deferments and be drafted, they decided not to give any grades. When the administration said, if you don't give these students grades, they will all fail, Maury had a solution. Let's give them all A's. And they did. Just as the 60s opened up the campus, it also opened up the staff in Maury's department. From the jeans and sandals they now wore when working to their view of the classroom as a living, breathing place. They chose discussions over lectures, experience over theory. They sent students to the Deep South for civil rights projects and to the inner city for field work. They went to Washington for protest marches, and Maury often rode the buses with his students. On one trip, he watched with gentle amusement as women in flowing skirts and love beads put flowers in soldiers' guns and sat on the lawn holding hands, trying to levitate the Pentagon. They didn't move it, he later recalled, but it was a nice try. One time, a group of black students took over Ford Hall at the Brandeis campus, draping it in a banner that read Malcolm X University. Ford Hall had chemistry labs, and some administration officials worried that these radicals were making bombs in the basement. Maury knew better. He saw right to the core of the problem, which was human beings wanting to feel that they mattered. The standoff lasted for weeks, and it might have gone on even longer if 
Mori hadn't been walking by the building when one of the protesters recognized him as a favorite teacher and yelled for him to come in through the window. An hour later, Mori crawled out through the window with a list of what the protesters wanted. He took the list to the university president and the situation was diffused. Mori always made good peace. At Brandeis, he taught classes about social psychology, mental illness, and health group process. They were light on what you'd call now career skills and heavy on personal development. And because of this, business and law students today might look at Mori as foolishly naive about his contributions. How much money did his students go on to make? How many big time cases did they win? Then again, how many business or law students ever visit their old professors once they leave? Mori's students did that all the time, and in his final months, they came back to him, hundreds of them, from Boston, New York, California, London, and Switzerland. From corporate offices and inner city school programs, they called, they wrote, they drove hundreds of miles for a visit, a word, a smile. I've never had another teacher like you, they all said. As my visits with Mori go on, I begin to read about death, how different cultures view the final passage. There is a tribe in the North American Arctic, for example, who believe that all things on Earth have a soul that exists in a miniature form of the body that holds it, so that a deer has a tiny deer inside it and a man has a tiny man inside it. When the large being dies, that tiny form lives on. It can slide into something being born nearby, or it can go to a temporary resting place in the sky, in the belly of a great feminine spirit, where it waits until the moon can send it back to Earth. Sometimes, they say, the moon is so busy with the new souls of the world that it disappears from the sky. That is why we have moonless nights, but in the end, the moon always returns, as do we all. This is what they believe. Chapter 17 The seventh Tuesday, we talk about the fear of aging. Mori has lost his battle. Someone was now wiping his behind. He faced this with typically brave acceptance no longer able to reach behind him when he used the commode. He informed Connie of his latest limitation. Would you be embarrassed to do it for me? She said no. I found it typical that he asked her first. It took some getting used to, Maury admitted, because it was, in a way, complete surrender to the disease. The most personal and basic things had now been taken away from him. Going to the bathroom, wiping his nose, washing his private parts with the exception of breathing and swallowing his food. He was dependent on others for nearly everything. I asked Maury how he managed to stay positive through that. Mitch, it's funny, he said. I'm an independent person, so my inclination was to fight all of this. Being helped from the car, having someone else dress me, I felt a little ashamed because our culture tells us we should be ashamed if we can't wipe our own behind. But then I figured, forget what the culture says. I have ignored that culture most of my life. I'm not going to be ashamed. What's the big deal? And you know what? The strangest thing. What's that? I began to enjoy my dependency. Now I enjoy when they turn me over on my side and rub cream on my behind so I don't get sores. Or when they wipe my brow. Or they massage my legs. I revel in it. I close my eyes and soak it up. And it seems very familiar to me. It's like going back to being a child again. Someone to bathe you, someone to lift you, someone to wipe you. We all know how to be a child. It's inside all of us. For me, it's just remembering how to enjoy it. The truth is, 
When our mothers held us, rocked us, stroked our heads, none of us ever got enough of that. We all yearn in some way to return to those days when we were completely taken care of. Unconditional love, unconditional attention, most of us didn't get enough. I know I didn't. I looked at Mori, and I suddenly knew why he so enjoyed my leaning over and adjusting his microphone, or fussing with the pillows, or wiping his eyes. Human touch. At 78, he was giving as an adult and taking as a child. Later that day, we talked about aging. Or maybe I should say the fear of aging. Another of the issues on my what's bugging my generation list. On my ride from the Boston airport, I counted the billboards that featured young and beautiful people. There was a handsome young man in a cowboy hat smoking a cigarette, two beautiful young women smiling over a shampoo bottle, a sultry-looking teenager with her jeans unsnapped, and a sexy woman in a black velvet dress next to a man in a tuxedo, the two of them snuggling a glass of scotch. Not once did I see anyone who would pass for over 35. I told Maury I was already feeling over the hill. Much as I tried desperately to stay on top of it, I worked out constantly, watched what I ate, checked my hairline in the mirror. I had gone from being proud to say my age, because of all I had done so young, to not bringing it up for fear I was getting too close to 40, and therefore professional oblivion. Maury had aging in better perspective. All this emphasis on youth, I don't buy it, he said. Listen. I know what a misery being young can be, so don't tell me it's great. All these kids who came to me with their struggles, their strife, their feelings of inadequacy, their sense of life was miserable. So bad they wanted to kill themselves. In addition to all the miseries, the young are not wise. They have very little understanding about life. Who wants to live every day when you don't know what's going on, when people are manipulating you? telling you to buy this perfume and you'll be beautiful, or this pair of jeans and you'll be sexy, and you believe them. It's such nonsense. Weren't you ever afraid to grow old, I asked? Mitch, I embrace aging. Embrace it? It's very simple. As you grow, you learn more. If you stayed at 22, you'd always be as ignorant as you were at 22. Aging is not just decay, you know, it's growth. It's more than the negative that you're going to die. It's also the positive that you understand you're going to die and that you live a better life because of it. Yes, I said, but if aging were so valuable, why do people always say, oh, if I were young again? You never hear people say, I wish I were 65. He smiled. You know what that reflects? Unsatisfied lives, unfulfilled lives. Lives that haven't found meaning. Because if you found meaning in your life, you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. You want to see more, do more. You can't wait until 65. Listen, you should know something. All younger people should know something. If you're always battling against getting older, you're always going to be unhappy. Because it will happen anyhow. And Mitch, he lowered his voice, the fact is, you are going to die eventually. I nodded. It won't matter what you tell yourself, I know. But hopefully, he said, not for a long, long time. He closed his eyes with a peaceful look, then asked me to adjust the pillows behind his head. <laughs>
His body needed a constant adjustment to stay comfortable. It was propped in the chair with white pillows, yellow foam, and blue towels. At a quick glance, it seemed as if Mori were being packed for shipping. Thank you, he whispered as I moved the pillows. No problem, I said. Mitch, what are you thinking? I paused before answering. Okay, I said. I'm wondering how you don't envy younger, healthy people. Oh, I guess I do, he closed his eyes. I envy them. Being able to go to the health club or go for a swim or dance, mostly for dancing. But envy comes to me, I feel it, and then I let it go. Remember what I said about detachment? Let it go. Tell yourself, that's envy. I'm going to separate from it now and walk away. He coughed a long, scratchy cough, and he pushed a tissue to his mouth and spit weakly into it. Sitting there, I felt so much stronger than he, ridiculously so, as if I could lift him and toss him over my shoulder like a sack of flour. I was embarrassed by the superiority, because I did not feel superior to him in any other way. How do you keep from envying, what, me? He smiled. Mitch, it is impossible for the old not to envy the young, but the issue is to accept who you are and revel in that. This is your time to be in your 30s, I had my time to be in my 30s, and now is my time to be 78. You have to find what's good and true and beautiful in your life as it is now. Looking back makes you competitive, and age is not a competitive issue. He exhaled and lowered his eyes as if to watch his breath scatter into the air. The truth is, part of me is every age. I'm a three-year-old, I'm a five-year-old, I'm a 37-year-old, I'm a 50-year-old. I've been through all of them, and I know what it's like. I delight in being a child when it's appropriate to be a child. I delight in being a wise old man when it's appropriate to be a wise old man. Think of all I can be. I am every age, up to my own. Do you understand? I nodded. How can I be envious of where you are when I've been there myself? A quote by W.H. Auden, Maury's favorite poet. Fate succumbs many a species. One alone jeopardizes itself. Chapter 18. The eighth Tuesday, we talk about money. I held up the newspaper so that Maury could see it. I don't want my tombstone to read, I never owned a network. Maury laughed, then shook his head. The morning sun was coming through the window behind him, falling on the pink flowers of the hibiscus plant that sat on the sill. The quote was from Ted Turner, the billionaire media mogul, founder of CNN, who has been lamenting his inability to snatch up the CBS network in a corporate mega deal. I have brought the story to Maury this morning because I wondered if Turner ever found himself in my old professor's position, his breath disappearing, his body turning to stone, his days being crossed off the calendar one by one. Would he really be crying over owning a network? It's all part of the same problem, Mitch, Maury said. We put our values in the wrong things and it leads to very disillusioned lives. I think we should talk about that. Maury was focused. There were good days and bad days now. He was having a good day. The night before, he 
had been entertained by a local a cappella group that had come to the house to perform. He had relayed the story excitedly, as if the ink spots themselves had dropped by for a visit. Mori's love for music was strong even before he got sick, but now it was so intense it moved him to tears. He would listen to opera sometimes at night, closing his eyes, riding along with the magnificent voices as they dipped and soared. You should have heard this group last night, Mitch. Such a sound. Mori had always been taken with simple pleasures, singing, laughing, dancing. Now more than ever, material things held little or no significance. When people die, you always hear the expression, you can't take it with you. Mori seemed to know that a long time ago. We've got a form of brainwashing going on in our country, Mori sighed. Do you know how they brainwash people? They repeat something over and over. And that's what we do in this country. Owning things is good. More money is good. More property is good. More commercialism is good. More is good. More is good. We repeat it and have it repeated to us over and over until nobody bothers to even think otherwise. Their average person is so fogged up by all this, he has no perspective on what's really important anymore. Wherever I went in my life, I met people wanting to gobble up something new, gobble up a new car, gobble up a new piece of property, gobble up the latest toy, and then they wanted to tell you about it. Guess what I got, guess what I got. You know how I always interpreted that? These people were so hungry for love that they were accepting substitutes. They were embracing material things and expecting a sort of hug back. But it never works. You can't substitute material things for love or for gentleness or for tenderness or for a sense of comradeship. Money is not a substitute for tenderness and power is not a substitute for tenderness. I can tell you as I'm sitting here dying, when you most need it, neither money nor power will give you the feeling you're looking for, no matter how much of them you have. I glanced around Mori's study. It was the same today as it had been on the first day I arrived. The books held their same places on the shelves, the papers cluttered the same old desk, the outside rooms have not been improved or upgraded. In fact, Mori really hadn't bought anything new, except medical equipment, in a long, long time maybe years. The day he learned that he was terminally ill was a day he lost interest in his purchasing power. So the TV was the same old model, the car that Charlotte drove was the same old model, the dishes and the silverware and the towels, all the same. And yet, the house had changed so drastically. It had filled with love and teaching and communication. It had filled with friendship and family and honesty and tears. It had filled with colleagues and students and meditation teachers and therapists and nurses and a cappella group. It had become in a very real way a wealthy home, even though Maury's bank account was rapidly depleting. There's a big confusion in this country over what we want versus what we need, Maury said. You need food. You want a chocolate sundae. You have to be honest with yourself. You don't need the latest sports car. You don't need the biggest house. The truth is, you don't get satisfaction from those things. You know what really gives you satisfaction? What? Offering others what you have to give. You sound like a boy scout. I don't mean money, Mitch. I mean your time, your concern, 
your storytelling. It's not so hard. There's a senior center that opened near here. Dozens of elderly people come there every day. If you're a young man or young woman and you have a skill, you are asked to come and teach it. Say you know computers, you come there and teach computers, you are very welcome there, and they are very grateful. This is how you start to get respect, by offering something that you have. There are plenty of places to do this. You don't need to have a big talent. There are lonely people in hospitals and shelters who only want some companionship. You play cards with a lonely older man, and you find new respect for yourself because you are needed. Remember what I said about finding a meaningful life? I wrote it down, but now I can recite it. Devote yourself to loving others. Devote yourself to your community around you. And devote yourself to creating something that gives you purpose and meaning. You notice, he added, grinning, there's nothing in there about a salary. I jotted some of the things Mori was saying on a yellow pad. I did this mostly because I didn't want him to see my eyes, to know what I was thinking. That I had been, for so much of my life since graduation, pursuing these very things he had been railing against. Bigger toys, nicer house. Because I worked among rich and famous athletes, I convinced myself that my needs were realistic, my greed inconsequential compared to theirs. This was a smokescreen. Mori made that obvious. Mitch, if you're trying to show off for people at the top, forget it. They will look down at you anyhow. And if you're trying to show off for the people at the bottom, forget it. They will only envy you. Status will get you nowhere. Only an open heart will allow you to float equally between everyone. He paused, then looked at me. I'm dying, right? Yes. Why do you think it's so important for me to hear other people's problems? Don't I have enough pain and suffering of my own? Of course I do, but giving to other people is what makes me feel alive, not my car or my house, not what I look like in the mirror. When I give my time, when I can make someone smile after they were feeling sad, it's as close to healthy as I ever feel. Do the kinds of things that come from the heart. When you do, you won't be dissatisfied. You won't be envious, you won't be longing for somebody else's things. On the contrary, you'll be overwhelmed with what comes back. He coughed and reached for the small bell that lay on the chair. He had to poke a few times at it and I finally picked it up and put it in his hand. Thank you, he whispered. He shook it weakly, trying to get Connie's attention. This Ted Turner guy, Maury said. He couldn't think of anything else for his tombstone. Alright friends, that's all we have for today. Thank you again for joining me today, and I hope you'll come to read with me again next week for our final few chapters of Tuesdays with Mori. Till then, bye bye.